Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, a podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 39, The Duchess and the Princess. So I've created a podcast all about the Victorian era, and I mention the name of Queen Victoria every episode. And we're now up to episode 39, and I have yet to really touch on the actual spirit of the show. That is, Her Majesty Queen Victoria. And as usual when we're talking about royalty in these times, it gets wonderfully convoluted. So please bear with me. Prince Edward was the Duke of Kent and Stratham. He was the fourth son of King George III. Prince Edward would soon find his older brother George becoming King George IV. Next in line was the other brothers, Frederick, then William, and then the aforementioned Prince Edward. But some of you might remember that soon-to-be George IV had a daughter, Charlotte, in 1796. Charlotte then became the legitimate heir to the throne, bumping her uncles down the line. She married Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld in 1816, but then she sadly died in 1817 after complications from a stillbirth. This then reset the sons of George III back into more importance in terms of succession. The now widower Leopold, by the way, would later go on to be the King of Belgium, so he gets some karmic consolation there. But with the death of Princess Charlotte and the many concerns over succession in the United Kingdom, the king's brothers sought to be married and have legitimate heirs as soon as possible. Prince Edward managed this by marrying Princess Victoria of Saxe-Coburg-Saalfeld in 1818. And if that surname seems familiar to you, you're correct in your thinking. Princess Victoria was the sister of the just-mentioned Leopold. So Prince Edward had married his niece's husband's sister. Like I said, European royalty gets very complicated. Now, Princess Victoria had been married before and had had a son, Carl, and a daughter, Theodora. At the time of their marriage, Prince Edward was 51 and Princess Victoria was 32. Now, we know these days just how big a royal wedding is. Certainly that gets helped by our media today, But can you imagine having two royal weddings on the same day? Because that's what happened on the 11th of July, 1818. Not only did Edward marry his Victoria, but his brother William married Princess Adelaide of Saxe-Meiningen. And of course, I will be covering William in far more detail at a later point, given that he will go on to be, spoiler alert, King William IV, But to give you an idea of how important it was for him to be married and try and produce a legitimate heir, well, William was an older man like his brother and had been living with an actress, one Dorothea Jordan, 
for around 20 years. And yet he left her and married, reportedly being faithful during his marriage, in an attempt to ensure the security of the throne in the House of Hanover. He also left the eight surviving of the ten children that he had had with Dorothea over those years. Yep, those kids don't count towards a throne. You have to be legit. Mind you, Edward too had been living with a woman for 28 years. She had been the wife of a French colonel when they met, and so they couldn't be married and they only parted ways when he had to get married too. Together they had spent a lot of time in Canada, and in addressing a group of people from Upper and Lower Canada, Edward is credited in coining the term Canadians. So each of these men clearly understood that they had a duty to their country and relinquished the lives that they had been living for decades. And thus we now had Prince Edward living with his Victoria. And clearly he took his succession duties seriously because they were married in July 1818. It was only shortly afterwards that Victoria fell pregnant and on the 24th of May 1819, Princess Alexandrina Victoria of Kent was born. The Alexandrina came from an honour to her godfather, Tsar Alexander I of Russia. This of course brought the newborn Alexandrina in line for the throne. However, she was known by the family as Victoria. I'm sure that comes as a real surprise to you, but I did like the fact that her father took great pride in his daughter telling people that she would one day be the Queen of the United Kingdom. During this time in his life, Edward lived with his little family in London. However, he wasn't all that great with money and was steadily increasing his debts, many related to his home in West London. In an attempt to cut back on his expenses, Prince Edward and his Victorias moved to a smaller home in Devon. But sadly, it was here that Edward caught pneumonia and died on the 23rd of January, 1820. At only the age of 52, he left behind a royal daughter less than a year old. Six days later, King George III died, bringing George IV to the throne and with William now as direct heir, followed by the infant Victoria. As a little girl, she was known to her family as Drina, a shortened version of her first name, Alexandrina. However, she also had a fondness for her middle name, and it was by about age four that her family tended to use Victoria or Vicky with her from then on. Princess Victoria's mother, who was the now widowed Duchess of Kent and Strathern, and for clarity I'll call Duchess Victoria, was what could be called a highly controlling and ambitious woman. She knew that Princess Victoria was now very much in direct line for the throne and was adamant that if Princess Victoria succeeded to the throne before she reached the age of 18, that she, the Duchess Victoria, would aid in her rule. And like any good drama, the Duchess had an accomplice in this plan. John Conroy had become the chief attendant to Prince Edward and continued to service the family once Edward had died, becoming the comptroller of the house. 
At this time, the three lived in Kensington Palace in London, and Conroy and the Duchess designed a system of strict rules for the princess to be raised to. Unsurprisingly, this set of rules became known as the Kensington System. And again, we get a scenario straight out of a dramatic BBC TV series, and yet was unfortunately true. The focus of this Kensington system was to ensure that Victoria was completely controlled by her mother and Conroy. They wanted to make sure that other relatives within the family had little contact or influence on Victoria. The poor little girl was never allowed to be alone, and at all times was accompanied, most often by her mother, and otherwise her tutor or her governess. As far as being around other children, well, yes, that was sadly well-disciplined as well. Aside from some family members, she was only allowed to play with her half-sister, Theodora, and Conroy's daughter. And just as a reminder for those of you playing at home, remember that Princess Victoria's mother had had two children before marrying Victoria's father. Well, Theodora was the daughter from that marriage. I know that when we see media portraying this era that it really is a case of children must be seen and not heard, or that it was all about duty and you must keep calm and carry on, but what was happening to Victoria would be categorised today as a form of abuse. Every aspect of her upbringing was controlled and manipulated. She began her schooling at age five, and even at that young age, after each lesson her mother would then test her on what she had learnt in her class. Every day from 9.30 in the morning until 11, and from 3 in the afternoon until 5, young Victoria would study in subjects such as scripture, decorum, literacy, as well as Greek, Italian, French, Latin, and German. And as her mother and the governess both spoke German fluently, it was something that would benefit her as a woman when she later married the German Prince Albert. Now, while Victoria did have that very restrictive upbringing, it does bear keeping in mind that young women during this time were given educations like this in order to specifically make them eligible to acquire a husband. Their education was focused on social skills rather than a skill required to obtain employment. It was more important that they know how to speak to nobles from across the continent rather than how to make a meal. Now, while you shouldn't underestimate the actual technical skill involved in being a social host, I think you're getting the idea as to what upper-class women were taught during this time. Victoria was given plenty of time to exercise outdoors, though, and enjoyed playing dress-ups as well as riding horses, the latter being something she had in common with her great-great-granddaughter, Elizabeth II. When Victoria was about nine, her half-sister Theodora was married and moved to what is now Germany. This was one of the few emotional connections that Victoria had, so you can imagine how difficult this was for her. Her only emotional solace was in growing closer to her governess, a woman that seemed to be very much in the camp of the Duchess and John Conroy. More on that shortly. But from the time that Victoria was 10, Louise Leeson, the governess and later baroness, kept diaries and maintained records on all of Victoria's behaviour. Read into it what you will, 
but it was around this time that Victoria began keeping her own journals, something that she would do for the rest of her life. Another fact that I found out aside from being a writer, Princess Victoria was also a painter, of watercolours no less. She also loved going to the theatre and very much enjoyed watching a play, and afterwards would go home, admittedly to a palace, and paint what she recalled from the play. Sometimes it might be the costumes, at other times the performers and their actions on stage. Her diaries from the time show that despite having a seemingly controlled childhood, she did have some moments of happiness, including a comment that she was very amused at a performance of Shakespeare's Othello. So much for the later famous quote of her saying that she is not amused. Around the time of 1830, King George IV was in very ill health. I've spoken about him previously, but insofar as he is concerned in this episode, it was becoming increasingly clear that young Victoria was soon to become the heir apparent to the throne of the United Kingdom. Because despite his marriage, her uncle William, who was currently next in line to the throne, had no children by his legal wife. While this is going on and during this time, Victoria continued her strict education and lessons. Examination of her academic talents were undertaken under the supervision of prominent clerics and the results published, all with the aim of showing the public that the young woman would be making a moral and competent queen one day. What I do find interesting is that during this time, the amount of control Victoria had over herself. Now it bears thinking about, in 1813, Victoria was about 10 years old. And from what we know from her personal writings, she seems a lot like other girls, enjoying theatre and plays, as I said, and seems to have even been a little flighty. According to her mother's remaining letters, there appears to have been a constant struggle between the Duchess, Victoria, and the Princess, Victoria. And yet, in her diaries, Victoria makes no mention of these difficulties. I'd speculate that Victoria knew that she had no choice but to have her mother in her life, as well as others such as John Conroy. And while she would put up with their constant supervision in her life, she did not allow them to intrude on her personal thoughts and dreams, as she wrote about in her diaries. Maybe she thought they might read her diary sometime. We really don't know. Also, I am sure there was an element of needing to please all these grown-ups as well. Their constant criticism and testing of her knowledge would no doubt establish a learned behaviour of constantly feeling that need for approval. During the late 1820s, many of the royal family were not happy with the actions of Duchess Victoria and John Conroy. This was largely because they weren't really into the fact that the Duchess seemed to be giving Conroy such power. He had been made a knight by King George IV, but still, he wasn't actual royalty. The royal family thought he was getting some ideas above his station, so to speak. The Duke of Clarence, aka soon-to-be King William IV, was reported to have called John Conroy King John. William's younger brother, the Duke of Cumberland at this time, who we already know by his name, Ernest Augustus, see episode 35, actually spread rumours that Conroy and the Duchess were lovers in an attempt to discredit the man. 
Some people really don't like it when you try and join their club. But during this time, Conroy had been consolidating his power and making sure that he was still an influence on the Duchess and an influence at the royal court. Less than a year after all this was happening, and in 1830, King George IV died, and thus his younger brother William became King William IV. This made Victoria the heir presumptive to the throne of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. About 11 years old, and a small petite girl, even as an adult, Victoria was only about 410 or 140 centimetres, she was now set to rule the greatest empire on earth. Victoria continued being taught in the restrictive Kensington system, and apart from those in Kensington Palace, Princess Victoria was in regular correspondence with King Leopold I of Belgium. You might remember him. He was the Duchess's brother and the man who had formerly been married to Crown Princess Charlotte before she had died, and he was also Victoria's uncle. I guess it was probably a good idea to be talking to other sovereigns, getting the lay of the land and regal hacks for making the job easier. After all, there's not exactly a huge number of people kicking about that you can talk about your job when you're looking at being in charge of everything around you. What does seem nice, though, is there seems to have been a genuine affection between the two, and this is easily seen in their surviving letters, where we can see Victoria refer to Leopold as her, quote, dearest and most beloved uncle, end quote. She would often consult him and ask him questions, and Leopold would take the time to write long and detailed replies to his niece. Another source of solace in this restrictive environment was the aforementioned Theodora. As Victoria moved into her teens, her half-sister became a more important influence on her life. Although by now Theodora was living in Europe with her own family, she and Victoria had a continued correspondence of shared affection and clearly showed that Victoria sought Theodora as her sister. But then there was another relationship that I have found so fascinating for the simple fact it might have actually changed history. I mentioned her name before, one Louise Leeson. She was to later be a baroness, but you might also remember from five minutes ago that she was Victoria's governess, who kept the detailed diaries on the princess, and now the crown heir, Victoria. She was very much the confidant of the one-day queen, and remained so even when Victoria actually took the throne. So, while I can speculate that she was keeping detailed reports on Victoria to give to her mother... I also think she must have had a lot of affection for her young charge. I'm only covering her youth in this episode, so I'm going to skirt when Victoria takes the throne, but I'm sure many of you listening know that she was only 18 when William IV died, and he did so exactly one month after she turned 18. Which was good in the sense that there was no regency period before Victoria took the throne. 
After all, I think we can all agree that her mother, the Duchess, would have definitely taken that role, and combined with the influence of John Conroy, I'm honestly not too sure how that regency would have gone. That all happens in 1837, but only two years before, in 1835, Victoria had been very ill, and it was during this illness that the Duchess tried to persuade Victoria to convince her to not take the throne at 18, but to do so at the age of 21. Now, again, this is only my speculation, but this would have given Victoria's mother and Conroy more time to cement their positions of power. This was all happening when Victoria was 16, and they had no idea that Victoria would inherit the throne only two years later. But it does go to show that the Duchess was planning ahead. William IV was an old man, and without modern health services, you could basically die at any time. So Victoria is basically a sure thing for the throne, but that means that she's going to be in charge and could curtail your personal power. Maybe she might be queen after 18 and before 21, and that would have been a dream for Duchess Victoria. Running a regency gives you a great deal of power, and if that happened, well, I don't know then the Duchess and Conroy could further solidify their positions for the future as the biggest players in the royal court. So we had the Duchess trying to delay her daughter getting on the throne, and as I said, while she didn't know it at the time, she was going to inherit the throne as basically a birthday present for becoming an adult. And then we had Governess Louise Leeson. During Victoria's illness and as her own mother was attempting to further solidify that personal position of power, it was Louise that stood steadfast with Victoria, telling the 16-year-old girl that she should not change the rules and that she should definitely inherit the throne at 18 rather than 21 if such a situation should arise. And as it turns out, such a situation did arise, literally as soon as it could. We can never know what might have happened if the Duchess had gotten her hands on the throne, so to speak, but it does go to show that sometimes it isn't the perceived most important person in the story that's making the biggest difference. Because of the support of her governess, Victoria had made the decision to take the throne at 18, if it came to that. And it did. And so we got a woman on the throne that was such an influence on society that we literally named the era after her. That illness occurred after what had been yet another trip touring around the kingdom, visiting people and places as the heir presumptive. The young woman found these trips exhausting, and her uncle the king was annoyed by them because at each visit Victoria was greeted warmly by the local populations. The king knew these tours were being planned by the Duchess Victoria. He also knew he was an old man and that Victoria was going to inherit the throne. Reportedly, his only ambition at this stage was to remain alive long enough for Victoria to reach the age of 18 and thus inherit the throne without the regency of her mother. The childhood of someone with such extreme levels of privilege is pretty much alien to most of us, this wasn't about just being rich and able to afford anything you wanted. Victoria had incredible social standing and power, along with a constant education designed to comprehensively 
educate as well as reinforce her position as not being an equal to others, but literally above them. But she was also put under incredible pressure to perform. Every day she was tested and made to perform academically. Victoria had that constant running battle with her mother, the Duchess, and I know I'm not speaking out of turn when I say she was hardly the first girl to have had that conflict. But there's something interesting here though. Being royalty sounds great and a real fun gig and lets you do what you want. Yet Victoria's education, for all its faults, was designed in such a way as to ensure that she was up to the task. It wasn't just about being a noble and a social superior, it was about being knowledgeable in a way that would serve her well as monarch of the biggest empire in the world. So while I would always come to the conclusion that the manipulation and the passive-aggressive attempts by her own mother and others like John Conroy should be condemned, there does remain the fact that such an education did serve Princess Victoria very well once she became Queen. And on that 20th of June 1837, King William IV died. Victoria now became Queen. And her first act as monarch? She demanded an hour alone. She later banned John Conroy from her presence, and while he continued working for the Duchess, Queen Victoria never saw him again. And thus the princess became the Queen. And here endeth the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslamp.com. My contact details are on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at Vic Gaslamp, and more importantly on Instagram where I post historical facts and trivia as well as photos related to the episodes. I am at Victorian Gaslamp, or one word, there as well. Thanks for listening and keep a lookout for new episodes. And as always, I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.